الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهديه الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد In the opening lecture today then inshallah ta'ala we're going to discuss a background regarding the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam that will include the full lineage of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam it will include a mentioning of all of his family his uncles and aunties his wives his children so that everybody has a background regarding the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam we all know from the fitnatul qabr that one of the questions we will be asked in the grave <coughs> is man nabiyyuka who is your prophet from those questions man rabbuka وَمَا دِينُكَ وَمَنْ نَبِيُّكَ Who is your Lord? What is your religion? And who is your prophet? So upon every believer is to have a background regarding the Prophet Muhammad wasallam that we know who the final messenger was and this is all a part of the knowledge that we need to have knowledge that we all must have some understanding of how can it be that a Muslim does not know who the final messenger is how can it be that a Muslim does not know who the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam is so this knowledge is important knowledge of the messenger knowledge of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam because as shaykhul islam ibn taymiyyah rahimahullahu ta'ala mentioned there are two types of wasila two types of wasila one of them you must have iman in if you do not it is kufr and the other one you must disbelieve in and if you do not it is kufr as for the type of wasila means and intermediaries that you must disbelieve in then it is the types that are shirk that the people utilize when they call upon the dead they call upon the deceased they try to seek intercession from those in their graves from the prophets from the messengers from the angels they try to seek an intercession an intermediary via those deceased individuals then that type of wasila you must disbelieve in it it is haram kufr shirk to be attempting to utilize such a wasila 
It is not valid in the religion. But there is the other type of wasila, the other type of a means that you must believe in. And if you do not, then it will be considered kufr. That is the wasila, the means of the prophets and messengers. The means of the prophets and messengers in terms of them being intermediaries from Allah to us in bringing the revelation. Because Allah did not give us all revelation one by one individually. Revelation did not come upon all of us one by one individually. Revelation came via Jibreel alayhi salam through the selected prophets and messengers. So they are the means of that revelation being conveyed to us. Hence, we must have Iman in the prophets and messengers because through them, the revelation was conveyed to us. And the last of them is of course the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So if we begin first with the lineage of the Prophet, and you will need to make ample notes in this opening lecture, because it is going to be a biography of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Facts about the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So to begin with then the lineage of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he is Abu Al-Qasim, as his kunya, Abu Al-Qasim, Muhammad, the son of Abdullah, the son of Abdul Muttalib, the son of Hashim, the son of Abd Manaf, the son of Qusay, the son of Kulab, the son of Murrah, the son of Ka'b, the son of Lu'ay, the son of Ghalib, the son of Fihr, the son of Malik, the son of Anadr, the son of Kinana, the son of Khuzaymah, the son of Mudrakah, the son of Ilyas, the son of Mudar, the son of Nizar, the son of Ma'ad, the son of Adnan. Up to there, it is agreed upon by the scholars. That lineage up to there is agreed upon by the scholars. And you may well need to refer back to the audio later. So that lineage up to there is agreed upon by the scholars. Then it carries on though. It does carry on, but there are some differences between the scholars over pronunciations, etc. of the lineage continuing thereafter. So from Adnan, the son of Udad, the son of Ali Muqawwim, the son of Nahur, the son of Tayrah, 
the son of Ya'rub, the son of Yashjub, the son of Nabit, the son of Ismail, the son of Ibrahim, Khalilullah. Then after that, it continues to the son of Tarih, also known as Azar, the son of Nahur, the son of Saru'ah, the son of Ra'u, the son of Falih, the son of Aibar, the son of Shalikh, the son of Arfakhshad, the son of Sam, the son of Nuh, then the son of Lamk, the son of Mutoshach, the son of Akhnukh, the son of Idris, the son of Yaz'umun, oh, oh no, the son of Idris, Kama Yaz'umun, the son of uh, after that, Yard, the son of Yard, the son of Idris, and then the son of Yard, the son of Mahlil, the son of Qinan, the son of Yanish, the son of Sheath, the son of Adam. So they have a lineage that goes all the way to Adam alayhi salam. Of course, as we mentioned, it is agreed upon up to Adnan, where we stopped initially, it is agreed upon up to there. Then after that, it continues with all of these other names up to Ibrahim, continuing up to Nuh, continuing up to Adam alayhi salam. But bear in mind, it is agreed upon up to Adnan. So that is the lineage of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Then, if we mention the mother of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, in fact, before we get to that, <coughs> a side point regarding the grandfather of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, who is Abdul Muttalib. Abdul Muttalib. It is the name Abd associated to Al-Muttalib. But Al-Muttalib is not one of the names of Allah. This, the scholars, they mention, of course, he has become famous by that name, Abdul Muttalib. His actual name was not Abdul Muttalib. His actual name was Shayba, Shayba al-Hamd. But he became popular and known widespread by the name of Abdul Muttalib. And they say because of an incident that occurred when he was young, that his uncle who was called Al-Muttalib, the uncle of Abdul Muttalib was called Al-Muttalib. On one occasion, Al-Muttalib was taking his nephew, Shayba Abdul Muttalib to a place and when the people saw them when they arrived they saw Shayba Abdul Muttalib the young boy at the time disheveled and they thought that Al Muttalib had brought along with him a slave boy they thought it was just his slave boy coming along with him so in Arabic slave is Abd so they began saying he is just the Abd of Al-Muttalib, Abdul Muttalib. And so he became popular and known by that name thereafter. 
Many of the scholars, therefore, they say this is not an evidence to be able to call yourself Abdul Muttalib. And the default in that remains that Abd is only associated onto the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then mentioning the mother of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, then that is, of course, Amina. Amina, the daughter of Wahab, who was the son of Abd Manaf, who was the son of Zuhra, the son of Kalab, the son of Murrah, the son of Kaab, the son of Lu'ay, the son of Ghalib. And the mother of the Prophet ﷺ was from the noble tribe of Quraysh, and her lineage connects with the lineage uh, uh, of the Prophet going upwards in their lineages from the father's side, connects at Kilab ibn Murrah. So that is Amina, the daughter of Wahab, the son of Abd Manaf, the mother of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Then moving on to the birth of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Wulida Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam bi Makkah. Amal fil. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was born in Makkah. That is something known and established that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was born in Mecca. The exact year that he was born in has some discussion amongst the scholars, but most of them they mention he was born in the year of the elephant as it is known as. There are other opinions. Some of them they say he was born uh, after the year of the elephant. Some say he was born several years, many years after the year of the elephant. And some may say around closer to the year of the elephant. But what is correct and most established is that he was born in the year of the elephant. The question obviously then is, If it's obvious, everybody should say it. What is the year of the elephant then? He was born in the year of the elephant. What is the year of the elephant? The year of the elephant, it refers to the story that is mentioned in the Qur'an. The story that is mentioned in the Qur'an regarding the disbelievers when they came to try and destroy the Kaaba, Abraha al-Ashram. They were Christians in Yemen at the time. Many Christians in Yemen at the time. And they had a disgruntlement, a dislike that Mecca was the core of the area. All of the trade, all of the business, the hub was Mecca. So they desired that the hub become with them in Yemen. And they had this jealousy towards them. 
in Mecca that they have the hub there, the Kaaba, and everything works through Mecca. All the trade routes and everything went through Mecca. So their plan was to build something that could copy the Kaaba, something that could be similar, even better than the Kaaba. So they built a huge church, a huge church in Yemen. They say in the books of Tafsir, it was so big, so high they built it, that when a man would stand at the foot of it and look up to the top of it, his head garments would fall off. Such would be how high you have to turn your head to see the top of it. A huge church that they built in order to compete with the Kaaba to try and get everybody through Yemen and the trade routes and those types of affairs they mention in the seerah. So they built this huge church. This then angered some of the Arabs at the time because they saw what was happening, that they were building this huge church and trying to compete, etc. with the Kaaba. Some of them became angered at that. And one of them in his zealousness, it is mentioned he went to that church and defecated upon its walls. Defecated upon the walls of the church. And then fled, ran away. Of course, when they saw that, and they saw that they've come and defecated in our church, they decided we will simply just go and destroy the Kaaba. Forget about competing in this church, we'll just go and destroy the Kaaba, finish it off for what they've done now. So then it's mentioned Abraha al-Ashram, their leader at the time, he gathered an army and they headed towards Mecca. Within his army, he had some elephants, huge elephants. Some of them say six, some of them say seven, some of them say 13. And they say there was one particularly large elephant in the army by the name of Mahmoud. And their plan was to go to Mecca and to tie chains around the Kaaba and then to tie the other ends of the chains around the camels, uh, around the uh, elephants. And then they would make the elephants run with those chains and it would bring down the Kaaba. This was their plan. So they headed towards Mecca. The Arabs, of course, they discovered what was happening and that they were coming to destroy the Kaaba. And the Kaaba was something that they honored even before the coming of the Prophet ﷺ. So they discovered that they were coming to destroy the Kaaba. En route, various tribes of the Arabs tried to confront Abraha al-Ashram and his army with the elephants. But Abraha destroyed all of these tribes that tried to stop him in the way, crushed them all and continued until he arrived at the boundaries of Mecca. Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ, he was known as the chief or the leader kind of figure at the time. So he had commanded them all to flee from Mecca, knowing that the army has managed to get there. Nobody's been able to stop them. 
They are there at the boundaries of Mecca, so they all fled to the mountains around Mecca. Then Abraha, it's mentioned in some of the books of Sirah, in some of the books of Tafsir, Abraha the leader came to speak with Abdul Muttalib, who was representing Mecca. And when he met him, they say in the books of Tafsir and Sirah, Sirah particularly, that when Abraha saw Abdul Muttalib, he was impressed. He was impressed by Abdul Muttalib, the way that Abdul Muttalib was and his appearance, etc. He was impressed to the level that they say Abraha came down from the chair. He was sat on, came and sat on the floor with Abdul Muttalib and said to him, or rather Abdul Muttalib said to him, release my camels because Abraha had come. Abraha had come and taken over now taken over the camels, taken over all the booty, everything, the war booty, yani the war booty, all the items and the possessions, taken it all, and it was in his possession. So Abdul Muttalib said to him, give me the camels back. Abraha, they say in the books of Sirah, was shocked at this. He said, I'm here with my army to destroy the Kaaba, your Kaaba. And all you're asking me for is your Camels back? That's all you're thinking about? Your camels? I'm here with my army to destroy your Kaaba. They say in the books of history that Abdul Muttalib said to him, As for the camels, then I am the Rabb of the camels. In Arabic, the Rabb meaning the one who owns them, in control of them. I'm the one, they are my camels. I am the owner of those camels, so I have to look after them. As for the Kaaba, Allah is the Rabb of the Kaaba, and Allah will protect the Kaaba. So it mentions afterwards that Abraha persisted and pursued that plot of destroying the Kaaba. So he pushed his elephants forward, and as he pushed them forward, it got to a stage where the elephants would no longer move towards the direction of the Kaaba. That they sat down and they refused to proceed towards the Kaaba. And when they would move them to another direction and get them to move, they'd get up and move. But when they pushed them back to the direction of the Kaaba, they would refuse to move. And in the end, we know in the Quran, as it's mentioned, that they were then pelted stoned with birds that were carrying those pebbles, one in each claw and one in their beaks, they came and pelted the army of Abraha al-Ashram until all of that army was destroyed. And it's mentioned that Abraha was pelted to such a degree that his insides were falling out his skin. It was all gone, pelted and everything falling out until they became like the fodder, as it's mentioned in the Qur'an. Those events, the year they happened in, is known as the year of the elephant. The scholars, they say, the Prophet ﷺ was born in that year. During that year, sometime afterwards, he was born in that year. He was also born on a Monday 
We know that much because there is a hadith where the Prophet ﷺ mentioned in Muslim, ذَلِكَ يَوْمْ وُلِدْتُ فِيهِ وَيَوْمَ بُعِثْتُ أَوْ أُنزِلَ عَلَيَّ فِيهِ That is the day regarding Monday. That is the day that I was born in and the day that I was sent in, i.e. he became a prophet, and or the day that the revelation came upon me. So we know he was born on a Monday and upon the correct opinion in the year of the elephant. What else do we know regarding his birth? We've got a day, we've got a year, we need a month. But the only issue now, when you start going into the actual month and the actual date, is that it is differed over. And there is no absolute, absolute definitive answer as to the month and the exact date. There are multiple opinions. Some of the scholars have mentioned at least six different opinions as to which month it was. There is even an opinion, an opinion, weak but an opinion, that it was in Ramadan that he was born. And there are other opinions about Rabi'ul Al-Awwal, uh, of different dates within Rabi'ul Al-Awwal and other months. So it is not established the exact date and the exact month that the Prophet ﷺ was born in. This therefore highlights a point regarding the innovation that some of the people engage in. The innovation of celebrating the birthday of the Prophet ﷺ. The question arises, if it is not definitely established exactly which date and which month the Prophet ﷺ was born in, then how in the first place have you decided when and what date and what month to celebrate the birthday of the Prophet ﷺ? It is unestablished as a definite date and month. So they are only doing what they do on a best guess. A best guess that it is this date and this month and let's do the birthday on it. On top of that, another clear proof that there is no celebration of the birthday is that all acts of worship that are designed in a definitive manner for us to do have been stipulated in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. They've all been stipulated. Now, if celebrating the birthday of the Prophet ﷺ was a definitive act of worship we have to do, then certainly you can be sure there would have been multiple hadith from multiple companions telling us of when that exact date is. It would not have been something lost and forgotten if it was a date of significance. If it was a date of significance that we have to celebrate, then there is no possibility of people saying all of the companions just forgot to tell us that exact date of significance. All of the companions, all of the narrators, everybody just forgot this date of significance, the birthday of the Prophet ﷺ. They did not forget. 
Rather, the date is not a date of significance. There is no ruling of ibadah specific to the birthday of the Prophet ﷺ. And that's why it was never mentioned as a specific date to be memorized and to be learnt and in the narrations and in the hadith. Wasn't there? Isn't there? Because it isn't a date of significance. So there are many refutations upon that. But the basic point historically being that it is not definitely proven the exact date and the exact month of the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. So that now we have briefly the lineage, we have briefly the mother side, and we have briefly the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. Then also, as a brief background and history, we know that the father of the Prophet ﷺ, Abdullah, died at an early stage. Some of the scholars, they say, there are some opinions about this. Some of them say, مَاتَ أَبُوهُ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ إِبْنْ عَبْدُ الْمُطَّلِبِ وَرَسُولُ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم قَدْ أَتَى لَهُ ثَمَانِيَةَ وَعِشْرُونَ شَهْرًا some they say upon an opinion that the Prophet ﷺ was 28 months old when his father died. There is an opinion that the Prophet was born and he was 28 months old when his father died. Some of them say in another opinion that actually his father died when the Prophet was only seven months old. So again, this opinion mentions he was born and he was seven months old. And another opinion states that his father died whilst the Prophet ﷺ was still unborn yet in the womb of his mother. And that is the correct and most established opinion that the father of the Prophet ﷺ died when the Prophet was not yet born. When the Prophet was young then, he was sent to uh, be fed by the wet nurses. He was sent to the wet nurses those whom he took breastfeeding from, and those witnesses, we have Thuwaybah, Thuwaybah, the Jariyah of Abu Lahab. Thuwaybah was one of the witnesses of the Prophet ﷺ. And she witnessed the Prophet ﷺ as well as Hamza, the son of Abdul Muttalib. So Hamza is the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ. And she also breastfed Abu Salama, Abdullah ibn Abdul Asad al-Makhzumi. There was another witness too, and that was... Oh, naam. This witness, Thuwaybah, Thuwayba is the first, and the second was Halima. Halima, the daughter of Abu Dhuayb as-Sa'diyyah. 
So this was something known at those times, how the Arabs would send their children out to the fresh and clean air of the outside areas away from the central villages, and they would be breastfed by those wet nurses. And so the Prophet ﷺ similarly was breastfed by Thuwaybah and by Halima, the two wet nurses of the Prophet ﷺ. Also what we know is at a young age, the mother of the Prophet ﷺ also passed away. Again, there are some differences regarding exactly how old the Prophet ﷺ was when his mother died. Some of them they say, مَاتَتْ أُمُّهُ وَهُوَ بْنُ أَرْبَعِ سِنِينَ That his mother died when he was four years old. And that is the opinion mentioned by many of the scholars. And it is uh, possibly the opinion that even the majority may have. But there is another opinion which is often mentioned. And that is that his mother died when he was actually six years old. When his mother was, or when he was six years old, that his mother then died. So when his mother died... There are some narrations regarding that from later on in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. It's mentioned, زَارَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ قَبَرَ أُمِّهِ فَبَكَى وَأَبْكَى مَنْ حَوْلَهُ That the Prophet ﷺ visited the grave of his mother and he wept. And those who were with him wept. Then he said, فَقَالْ إِسْتَأْذَنْتُ رَبِّي فِي أَنْ أَسْتَغْفِرَ لَهَا فَلَمْ يُؤْذَنْ لِي That I asked my Lord for permission to pray for her forgiveness, but He did not grant me permission to do that. فَلَمْ يُؤْذَنْ لِي وَاسْتَأْذَنْتُهُ فِي أَنْ أَزُورَ قَبْرَهَا فَأُذِنَ لِي فَزُورُ الْقُبُورَ فَإِنَّهَا تُذَكِّرُ الْمَوْتِ And then he said, I asked for permission to visit her grave. And Allah gave me permission for that. So then the Prophet ﷺ said, So you similarly visit the graves. For indeed, they remind you of death. Visiting the graves, we know that is something permissible to do in order to remember death, in order to give salam to those who are deceased, in order to make dua for them, not from them. That is all permissible in regards to the men to do. As for the women, we know there is a difference of opinion regarding that, regarding women visiting the graveyards. Some of the scholars, they say in one opinion, that it is absolutely prohibited for women to visit graveyards. Because of the hadith, لَعَنَ اللَّهُ زَائِرَاتِ الْقُبُورِ Allah curses the women who visit the graveyards. But there is another opinion that says that women can visit graveyards, but only if it is, as we say in English, once in a blue moon. If they do it on a very rare basis, 
every now and again, then it is permissible, some scholars say. And they use the same hadith, but a different wording. In another wording it says, That Allah curses the constant females who visit graves, or the constant female visitors to the graveyards. So if a woman is not constantly visiting, not regularly and always visiting, but on the odd occasion, on the odd rare occasion goes, then according to that opinion it would be okay, as long as she is able to control herself regarding that, and the visitation to her family, whomsoever it may be, and that she is covered properly with all of the rest of the affairs in place. So then, after his mother died, his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, began looking after him, and he looked after him for approximately two years, until he then also died. So when the grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ died, and his grandfather used to have a lot of love for the Prophet ﷺ, to the extent he would even prefer him over his own children. And when he died though, it was then the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Talib, who then began looking after him. And he raised the Prophet ﷺ and spent more than 40 years of his life with the Prophet ﷺ. And we know though, Abu Talib, despite spending 40 years or more with his blood nephew, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, defending him, protecting him against the mushrikun, sacrificing, making personal sacrifices to defend the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam from before he became a prophet and from after that too. Yet despite all of that defense, and protection and sacrifice that Abu Talib made on his deathbed when the Prophet ﷺ went to visit him to try and give him da'wah at that last opportunity whilst Abu Talib is on his deathbed. So the Prophet went to him and when he went he noticed that two of the mushrikun had already gone. They were already there at the bedside of Abu Talib. So the Prophet went and he said to his uncle, Ya Am, قُلْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ كَلِمَةً نُحَاجُ لَكَ بِهَا عِنْدَ اللَّهِ Say, La ilaha illa Allah, my uncle, a word that will be of defense for you on the day of judgment. But when the Prophet was telling his uncle Abu Talib to become a Muslim, to say the shahada. On his deathbed Abu Talib was, the mushrikun was stood right there. So they saw what the Prophet is trying to do. So they interjected and they began to say to Abu Talib, are you going to leave the religion of your forefathers? أَتَتْرُكُ مِلَّةَ آبَائِكَ 
Millata Abdul Muttalib. Are you going to leave the religion of your forefathers? The religion of your father Abdul Muttalib and your forefathers. Are you going to leave that? So then when the Prophet heard them trying to convince him to remain as a mushrik, he repeated again, Uncle, say La ilaha illallah. So then the mushrikun again, are you going to leave the religion of your forefathers? And in the end, it's mentioned, Kana akhira ma qal. The last thing that uh, Abu Talib said was that he is going to remain upon the religion of his forefathers. And he did not accept Islam, so he will be in the hellfire. Regarding that, that narration, the scholars they mentioned, that look at the example of Abu Talib, 40 years or more, alongside, side by side with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, aiding him, helping him, protecting him, sacrificing for him. All of that he did. But in the end, he didn't actually enter into Islam. And as a consequence, his actions will not save him. 40 years of defending the Prophet ﷺ will not save him from the fire. The scholars say, therefore, it is not just about saying that you know what the truth is and you know what you're supposed to do and you know that's right if you don't actually do it. Some people, you give them da'wah, they say, I know, I know. I know that's what you're supposed to do. I know that's the right thing. I know. But they don't do it. Just saying, I know and I accept and I know that's right, but never doing it, then that is a major problem. This religion is iman and actions. Iman and worship. So Abu Talib had the statements and the defense and the actions, but he did not enter into Islam and do those actions sincerely for the sake of Allah. Hence, he died as a disbeliever and not as some of the deviants say that he died as a believer. Rather, he died as a disbeliever, did not enter into Islam. So that was Abu Talib, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ. The next section then perhaps we'll skip on to is the children, or before the children, perhaps the wives, the wives of the Prophet ﷺ. So regarding the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, the first wife that he married was of course Khadija, the daughter of Khuwaylid, the son of Asad, the son of Abdul Uzza, the son of Qusayt, the son of Kula. Okay, la. Tazawwajaha wa huwa ibn khamsin wa ishreen sana. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when he married Khadija, he himself was 25 years old. And they mentioned that she was approximately 40 years old. When you read into the books of Sirah, you may come across an opinion 
an opinion which is not the stronger opinion, but it's an opinion. That she was actually approximately 26, 28. But this opinion is not strong. It is not as valid and established as the clear opinion which is known that she was closer to the age of 40 at the time. When did this marriage actually occur? Or rather, we say that he married her when he was 25, which therefore means it occurred 15 years before he became a prophet. وَبَقِيَتْ مَعَهُ حَتَّى بَعَثَهُ اللَّهُ عَزَّ وَجَلْ And she remained with him all the way up until he became a prophet, was married with him all that time. فَكَانَتْ لَهُ وَزِيرَ صِدْقٍ وَمَاتَتْ قَبْلَ الْهِجْرَ بِثَلَاثِ سِنِينَ And she died before the hijrah, before the hijrah by three years. Three years before the hijrah she died. And that is the most correct opinion. You may hear other opinions saying it was five years before the hijrah or four years before the hijrah. But the most correct opinion is that she died three years before the hijrah. Then also from the wives of the Prophet ﷺ is Saudah. Saudah, the daughter of Zama'ah, who was the son of Qais, the son of Abd Shams, and Kanat Qablahu Inda Sakran ibn Amr. She was previously married to a Sakran ibn Amr. Uh, and then after that, when she was divorced from him, she married the Prophet Saudah, the daughter of Zama'ah. Then also we have, of course, Aisha, the daughter of Abu Bakr, As-Siddiq, radiyallahu anhuma. And the marriage to Aisha was in Mecca, approximately two years before the Hijrah. And some of them say maybe three years, some of them six years, some of them seven years. But the most correct opinion is that the Prophet ﷺ married Aisha a couple of years before the Hijrah. And she, Aisha radiallahu anha, died later in the history, died in Medina. She died in Medina and she was buried in Baqiyah. The graveyard that you see close to the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. And she had actually requested to be buried in Baqiyah. So when she died, she was buried in Baqiyah. And that was approximately 58 Hijri. Some say 57 Hijri. And it was who that led the Janazah prayer upon her? Abu Hurairah. Abu Hurairah. Radiallahu He led the janazah prayer upon Aisha Radiallahu anha Between Aisha and Khadija Radiallahu anhuma We know that there is a discussion between the scholars Regarding which of them is more virtuous Who is more virtuous Aisha or Khadija Anybody? 
Khadija, why? So you're saying Khadija is more virtuous than Aisha because Khadija radiallahu anha was with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in those early years of Islam when there were very few Muslims. She was the support for the, for the Prophet. She was the one who was by his side. She was the one offering all of that aid and assistance and support to the Prophet ﷺ in the difficult early years when there were hardly any believers at the first stages. There is even a narration at one time where it mentions how the one narrating it says, I saw a man come out in front of the Kaaba at the time when the sun was in the sky, Zuhr time approximately maybe, that a man came and began to pray. Then I saw a woman came and lined up behind him and began to pray. And then I saw a boy came and lined up at the side and began to pray. In the narration, the other one says to him, who, who are they? Who are you talking about? He says, the man who I'm talking about came out to pray. Then it was the Prophet Muhammad. He is Muhammad, the son of Abdullah. And the woman who came was Khadija. She is Khadija. And the boy who came is Ali. And they say, the narrator says, because the, uh, the narration is like a story mentioned of the time. He says, I do not know anybody upon the face of the earth, upon this religion of theirs, other than them. Just them. So Khadija was with the Prophet ﷺ in those early times. So that may be a reason to say that she is superior to Aisha. Before we get to the next part, there's a message uh, for the sisters. It says that there is a black BMW with a registration of MC19YPF. It's parked in the church car park next door. And it needs to be removed immediately. So the black BMW MC19YPF. So that is one possible reason we may say Khadija is superior. Anybody have a different answer or do we already have a consensus? What's happening? So what are you saying? Who is more superior? <coughs> So you, what are you saying then? Who is more superior? I know the brothers here will come to the classes try to get clever. But you know, what's the answer? Is it Aisha or is it Khadija? So now I think Aisha radiallahu anha and you're saying because? Because she had more knowledge of the religion. It is known that Aisha radiallahu anha was basically a scholar. She was a scholar. Some of the men companions, male companions used to seek fatwa from her. She was known for that high level of knowledge. She was a scholar, as Imam al-Dhahabi said. So maybe that is a reason to say that she was uh, more virtuous and superior to Khadija. It doesn't matter about the better question. We just need to know who is more virtuous. Aisha or Khadija. Who is more virtuous? What's the benefit in We'll get to that afterwards. Right now, who is more virtuous? This is a discussion of the scholars in the books of old. Virtues of the companions are mentioned. There are books about the virtues of the companions. 
the Prophet ﷺ told us about the virtues of the companions. There are books that are 12, 15 volumes on the virtues of the companions because it is our aqidah as Ahlu Sunnah we love and respect and honor the companions. So knowing about their virtues is something good for us. So now this is a discussion about the virtues of Aisha and Khadija. So you're saying Khadija also because she was the first to accept Islam. So a similar type of answer to that over there. Aisha, why? This is now the second opinion on Aisha to balance it out. Go ahead. Okay. Because that marriage of Aisha to the Prophet ﷺ, the virtue mentioned behind that. In conclusion, what you can say about this... In conclusion, as Ibn al-Qayyim mentioned, uh, Ibn al-Qayyim, he, he spoke about this topic in Jala'ul Afham, and he was quoting what Shaykh al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah said. He said that both of them obviously have many virtues. Both of them obviously have many virtues. And he said the real way to explain it, like in English, how we say these days, separate from what we're talking about now, just as an example in English, how you talk about comparing apples and pears. Everybody knows that example. That there are two different things you can't compare. Ibn Taymiyyah said that the comparison isn't straightforward like that. You can't just say two wives of the Prophet, which one is better? He said the comparison doesn't work. Because Khadija, her role was completely different to the role of Aisha. The role of Khadija was as mentioned by the brothers in the early years of Islam. Her virtues are connected to the early years of Islam. And her defense and her support and her sacrifice for the Prophet ﷺ in those early years of difficulty, that's her virtues connected to that role. Whereas the role of Aisha is a different role altogether. Her role was about the knowledge that she married the Prophet when she was young, and the scholars mention as a consequence, she learned a huge amount of knowledge from the Prophet ﷺ that she disseminated, from the narrators of hadith who narrated the most narrations, she's in that list at the top, the ones who narrated more than a thousand hadith each. So her virtue was at the end of Islam, whereas Khadija, her virtue was at the beginning of Islam. So it's like a comparison that can't really be made. They aren't fulfilling the same role. Therefore, you can't really make a direct comparison and say one is more virtuous than the other. They had different types of virtues. So that is just a brief thing regarding that point. Continuing with the list of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, also we have Hafsa. Hafsa, the daughter of Umar ibn al-Khattab. The daughter of Umar ibn al-Khattab, Hafsa. Uh, and then we also have Um Habibah. Um Habibah. The daughter of Abu Sufyan. And what was the name of Um Habibah? Um Habibah is of course the kunya. What was her actual name? Anyone? What was the actual name of Um Habibah? Will it help if you offer a prize? 
Will the brain cells work faster? Um Habiba Ramlah. Her name was Ramlah. Ramlah Um Habiba, the wife of the Prophet also. Then we have Um Salama. Um Salama. And what was her name? Um Salama. What was her name? Anybody? Hind. Who said it? Good thing we didn't offer a prize. Hind. So Um Salama, her name was Hind. Hind Um Salama. Then we also have Zainab. Zainab, the daughter of Jahsh. Zainab bint Jahsh. One of the wives of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Then there was another Zainab. There was another Zainab too. Another Zainab, Zainab the daughter of Khuzayma. So Zainab the daughter of Jahsh, and also Zainab the daughter of Khuzayma. And they, uh, they say that Zainab the daughter of Khuzayma, who was the wife of the Prophet ﷺ, they say that she used to be called Umm al-Masakeen. Masakeen meaning the people in poverty, poor, Umm al-Masakeen. Because of how much help she used to give to the poor. How much help she used to give to the needy in feeding them, giving them uh, food and water. That she became known as Ummul Masakin. Also from the wives we have Juwayriyah, the daughter of Al-Harith. <coughs> Juwayriyah, the daughter of Al-Harith. Then also we have Safiyah. Safiyah. The daughter of Huyay ibn Akhtab. And also we have Maymuna, the daughter of Al Harith. Maymuna, the daughter of Al Harith. And she was the last of the wives that the Prophet married. Maymuna, the daughter of Al Harith. So those are the names. Of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ. Then if we now come to the children of the Prophet ﷺ. So how many sons did the Prophet ﷺ have? Three? Who said three? Put your hands up if you said three. Three sons? Sure? Correct? Three sons, three sons for the Prophet ﷺ. And they are Al-Qasim, Al-Qasim, the son of the Prophet ﷺ. And that is where the kunya comes from, Abu Al-Qasim. وَبِهِ كَانَ يُكْنَا وُلِدَ بِمَكَّةَ قَبْلَ النُّبُوَّةِ Al-Qasim was born before the Prophet became a Prophet. Al-Qasim was born before the Prophet Muhammad actually became a Prophet. Uh, And it is mentioned that Al-Qasim died young. That he was only two years old at the time when he died. And some of the scholars, they mentioned that he was able to walk. He was walking at the time when he died. 
and that fits. A child can often walk at the age of two. So he died at the young age. Then there was Abdullah. Abdullah. And he is sometimes also known as At-Tayyib. Wat-Tahir. At-Tayyib and At-Tahir. That is Abdullah. Some of the scholars, they say At-Tayyib Wat-Tahir. They are different. That is different. Different child. But in reality, they were just names for Abdullah. So Abdullah, and then what you hear, At-Tayyib, At-Tahir, that is all in reference to Abdullah. Then also the third son was Ibrahim, and he was born in Medina, uh, and he died uh, when he was only, they say, 17 or 18 months old. 17 or 18 months old. There are some other narrations of other children which are not established. Narrations that there was a child by the name of Abdul Uzza. And of course that is not the case and that cannot be the case. Those types of narrations are incorrect, invalid. Seerah is the most difficult topic to check and verify. Seerah, history, it is a very difficult topic to uh, verify and check. But this is known that there was not a child, Abdul Uzza. It was those three sons. Daughters of the Prophet ﷺ, how many? Four. So firstly there was Zainab. Zainab, the daughter of the Prophet ﷺ. There was also Fatima. And of course she married Ali ibn Abi Talib. There was also Ruqayyah, and she married Uthman ibn Affan. Uh, and then there was also Umm Kulthum. So Ruqayyah bintu Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam tazawajaha Uthman ibn Affan famatat indah. Ruqayyah, Uthman ibn Affan radiyallahu anhuma, he married her. But then she died. So then when she died, Uthman married Umm Kulthum. And it is mentioned in the narration that the Prophet ﷺ said, after her death, that if I had another daughter, I would have married her to you. So those are the four daughters of the Prophet all of the children of the Prophet ﷺ died during his lifetime, except Fatima. All of his children died during his lifetime, except Fatima. She died six months or so after the death of the Prophet ﷺ. So that is the children of the Prophet and we are running out of time, we'll do the uncles and aunties. The purpose of the lecture is a fact file, a biography. So we'll do the uncles and the aunties. So you have a list of the uncles and aunts of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam too. كَانَ لِرَسُولِ اللَّهِ sallam مِنَ الْعُمُومَةِ Paternal uncles, paternal uncles, Brothers of his father, 
there were 11. The names of them, Al-Harith, Al-Harith, and he was the eldest of the children of Abdul Muttalib, Al-Harith, the uncle of the Prophet. There was also Qutham, Qutham, and he died when he was young, it's mentioned. There was also Az-Zubair, Az-Zubair, the son of Abdul Muttalib, Az-Zubair. There was also Hamza, Hamza everybody knows, Hamza, the son of Abdul Muttalib, Asadullah, the Lion of Allah. He was, of course, martyred in the battle of Uhud. Then there is also Abu al-Fadl, and his name was Abbas, Al-Abbas, Abu al-Fadl, Al-Abbas. And of course, then you have the famous Abdullah. How much do we need to push? Abdullah ibn Abbas. So then you have Abu al-Fadl, Al-Abbas, and he became Muslim. Some of these uncles, they became Muslim, some of them did not. Some of these uncles of the Prophet became Muslim, some of them did not. Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas, of course, he became Muslim. And he had uh, ten sons, al-Fadl, Abdullah, Abdullah ibn Abbas, and others. Uh, Also, there was Abu Talib, from the uncles of the Prophet, Abu Talib. And in fact, what was the name of Abu Talib? Abu Talib is a kunya too. Abu Talib is also a kunya. So what was the name of Abu Talib? No, that was Abdul Muttalib. Abu Talib, we're talking about now, the uncle. What was his actual name? Because Abu Talib is a kunya again. No, that's Abdul Muttalib. Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather, we said was Shaybatul Hamd. Now we're talking about Abu Talib, Ibn Abdul Muttalib. Abu Talib, what was his name? They say his name was Abd Manaf. Abd Manaf. Then also we have Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab, everybody knows. And his name was Abdul Uzza. Abu Lahab again, a kunya. And his name, Abdul Uzza. Then we also have Abdul Kaaba. One of the uncles by the name of Abdul Kaaba. There was also another by the name of Hajal. And they say his name was Al Mughira. And another by the name of Zarar. And another by the name of Al-Ghaydaq. Al-Ghaydaq. That is the list of the names of the paternal uncles. Some of them became Muslim, some of them did not. Paternal aunties of the Prophet, six. Safiya, Safiya, the daughter of Abdul Muttalib, and she became Muslim. Safiya. The daughter of Abdul Muttalib, she became Muslim. She died in Medina during the Khalifa or the Khilafa of Umar ibn al-Khattab. Then we have Atika. Atika. It is mentioned she also became Muslim. It is mentioned that she also became Muslim. Atika, the daughter of Abdul Muttalib. Then there is also Arwa. Arwa, the daughter of Abdul Muttalib. And there is also Umaymah. Umaymah, the daughter of Abdul Muttalib. There is also Barrah. 
Barrah, the daughter of Abdul Muttalib. And there is also Umm Hakim. Umm Hakim. Uh, and she was, uh, uh, the name was Al-Bayda'ah. The daughter of Abdul Muttalib. Al-Bayda'ah, the daughter of Abdul Muttalib. So that then now gives you some background <coughs> regarding the birth of the Prophet ﷺ, regarding the lineage of the Prophet ﷺ, regarding the death of his parents and the upbringing, regarding the year he was born in and the story of the elephant, regarding his uh, wives, regarding all of his children, regarding his uncles and aunties. It gives you a brief factual background into the Prophet ﷺ. We'll have to round it off on that, try and do some of these questions as well. But that is a brief background and that's been taken from the book Mukhtasar Seerat nabi Mukhtasar Seerat nabi a summarized seerah of the Prophet and at the end of the book there is a seerah, a very summarized one of the ten companions who were given the glad tidings of paradise by Abdul Ghani uh, Al-Maqdisi. Abdul Ghani Al-Maqdisi, a summarized seerah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We have done the whole book on one occasion. Those audios are available. So we'll just round off that factual background lecture on the Prophet upon that point. And we'll just do some of these questions that we're able, inshallah, before rounding off this opening session. First question here says, why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not accept any other religion besides Islam? We know in the Quran Allah told us, Islam. Indeed, the religion with Allah is Islam. And we also know Allah told us in the Quran, Whomsoever seeks a religion other than Islam, then it will not be accepted from him. So why is that the case? Because Islam is the only religion of monotheism. It is the only religion built upon Tawheed. And the meaning of Tawheed, that we single out Allah with all aspects of our worship. We do not associate any partners alongside Allah at all. No other religion does that except Islam. And what does Allah want from His creation? Allah told us He did not create the jinn or the humans except for us to worship Him alone. The Salaf, they said, meaning that Allah created us to worship Him alone. Tawheed. So from all of the religions, who does that? Only Islam. The final revelation that Allah sent to us. Whereas the previous revelations originally, the revelations given to Musa and Isa, Jesus, Moses, Abraham, all of them were revelations of Tawheed. Originally, all the prophets and messengers came with Tawheed. But then they were distorted and they were changed and they brought shirk into the affair. 
So now the final revelation, the final messenger, the Quran and the Sunnah is all that is acceptable now. That is the religion of Tawheed, not the religion of associating partners and claiming Allah has sons and daughters, as some of them do. How can I give da'wah to non-Muslims to become Muslims? This reminds me of a question once a Sheikh Al-Fawzan was asked. When he came, he used to come to the University of Medina once a year and do a lecture in the huge auditorium, the big lecture theater. And there was a question to him. Somebody said, Sheikh, how do I become, not related to this, but it reminds me of it. He said, Sheikh, how do I become a sheikh. How do I become a scholar? And the sheikh gave an answer. A one word answer. That's all he said to him. One word answer. He said, Ta'allam. Go and study. You want to be a sheikh? Then go and study. Study your religion. Learn the Quran, the Sunnah. Go and study everything. So now, how do I give da'wah to non Muslims? The answer is the same there. Ta'allam. Come and study the religion, learn the evidences, learn what this is, what Tawheed is, learn how to explain that, then you are going to be able to give da'wah. As we know, al-ilmu qabla al-qawli wal-amal, knowledge comes before statements and actions. So the very simple answer is knowledge first, study, learn, attend the gatherings of knowledge, attend with the mashayikh. If you know Arabic and you are in a place where the mashayikh are there, if not, then attend with the students of knowledge available. The Salafiyun in those Salafi Masajid and Marakis. Attend those classes, attend those gatherings. Learn the knowledge stage by stage. Uh, acquire that knowledge, solidify that knowledge. Then the more you learn, the more you will be able to give da'wah. Because the purpose of learning, the scholars they say, what is the purpose or your objectives behind learning. They say two things. They say, To remove ignorance from yourself first, and then to be able to remove it from others. You seek that knowledge for the sake of Allah, to remove ignorance from yourself, so that you are then upon knowledge, and you can act upon that knowledge. <coughs> and then also, that you can then help to remove the ignorance from others. So the key to that is seeking knowledge. And there are many narrations in encouragement of seeking knowledge in the Quran, in the Sunnah, in the narration where the Prophet mentioned, Man bihi khayra Whomsoever Allah wants goodness for will give him precise knowledge of the religion. In another narration, Man salaka Whomsoever treads upon a pathway seeking by it knowledge, then Allah will make his pathway to paradise easy because of it. In the same narration, That the angels lower their wings to the student of knowledge in pleasure at what he is doing. In the Quran, are they equal the ones who know and the ones who do not know? Certainly, as Shaykh Al-Thaymeen said, the answer to that is no. The ones who know, have knowledge, have understanding of their religion, then they are superior to the ones who do not. So with regards to that, the answer is simple. 
You come and you attend the gatherings of knowledge. If you are not able to do so, you live far from your local markaz or masjid or from the <coughs> students or the mashaykh, then in that case, attend online and tune in. Tune in to the lessons live. Or perhaps, for example, some of the sisters may not be able to come physically to the masjid with the responsibilities, children in bed, etc. Then if you are able to the best of your ability, log on and listen online. Even if that's not possible, catch up afterwards with the recordings that are available. But primarily, if you have the ability, attend the <coughs> gatherings of knowledge. A person who doesn't have any excuse, then what are you missing those gatherings of knowledge for? Around the corner from where you live and you miss the gatherings of knowledge. It is as though, like we've said before, when people come to their diary, they come to their diary for the week and they have it fixed in. We have to get the shopping. We have to get the shopping on a Thursday. Nothing to eat otherwise. Have to get the shopping. And we have to do the MOT on the car this week. We have to, and they have all these things they have to do. Yet, attending the gathering of knowledge which is going on that week, doesn't even make it onto the list of have to. How can that be? That your shopping must get onto the list because you'll have nothing to eat at home. And yet the nutrition for your hearts, as the scholars mentioned, you leave that empty with nothing in it. You want to fill your physical bodies, that cannot go empty. But you leave your hearts to go empty. It is a disaster for the one who has the ability and yet stays away from the gatherings of knowledge. Stays away from those blessed gatherings of knowledge. So attend and learn and that will aid you in being able to give da'wah. How to do tawbah, how to do tawbah in Islam, etc. The tawbah, what are the conditions of doing tawbah? The conditions of doing tawbah? Okay. The conditions of doing tawbah, we know there are several conditions to doing tawbah. That firstly and obviously... So Tawbah then, the first condition obviously is that you stop doing the sin. You cannot make Tawbah and seek forgiveness if you are still doing the sin. You are clearly not repenting in that case. So obviously you stop doing the sin. You must also have regret over having done the sin. 
If you're happy and you think, okay, good, I got it done, and now I'll repent though, and you're not regretting what you did, then you are not sincere in seeking forgiveness. You regret and you understand and you feel bad for what you've done. So you stop the sin. You regret having done the sin. You make a firm intention that you will never return to that sin again. You make an absolute intention, firm, resolute, not to go back to that sin again. And it must also be done, of course, upon sincerity, but which time frame? Before you die, before the soul exits from your throat. In the narration it mentions, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَقْبَلُ تَوْبَةَ الْعَبْدِ مَا لَمْ يُغَرْغِرْ Allah accepts the tawbah of a person as long as his soul is not exiting from his neck or up until when the sun rises from the west. What time is the prayer? Three o'clock? Some people they say, uh, this is an Arabic word in fact, Hadaratu, Hadaratu Abu Talib. Uh, and in the uh, subcontinental pronunciations, Hazrat Abu Talib. Um, and they say they do that out of respect. It would be likely that this is not a correct thing to do because at the end, Abu Talib, despite what he did, died as a mushrik. Ibn Kathir mentioned in Al-Bidaya wa Nihaya some poetry that is supposed to have been written by Abu Talib. In this poetry, in this poem, Abu Talib says that I know, I know that the religion of Islam is the best of religions. And was it not for the blameworthiness meaning the blameworthiness he felt from abandoning the religion of his forefathers, was it not for the blameworthiness, then you would have seen me forthcoming. Ibn Kathir mentioned that in Al-Bidaya wa Nihaya, and it's supposedly written by Abu Talib, that I know the best of the religions is the religion of Muhammad. Was it not for the blameworthiness, then you would have seen me forthcoming. So he knew the truth even, knew and yet refused to enter. And as a consequence, he dies as a kafir. And so it's mentioned in the Quran, <laughs> You cannot guide whom you will. It was mentioned to the Prophet ﷺ that despite how much the Prophet wanted his uncle to be guided, he was not guided. And he died upon Islam. And so the ayah was revealed, you cannot guide whom you love. The guidance is under the control of Allah. So it would not be suitable to give honor and respect in that way to Abu Talib, the one who died in the end upon shirk. What makes a person who has gained knowledge to act in opposite to what he has learned? There are many things and it should not be a surprise. Sometimes people, they talk about these things as a surprise. But how can you say such and such is wrong and don't listen to him? He's such a big scholar. How can he be wrong and how can you be claiming he's doing things which are wrong? The example which the scholars, they mention very easily is, don't be surprised if somebody who is supposed to be a scholar then goes against his learnings and his teachings or somebody who's supposed to be a student of knowledge and then he starts going against Ahlul Sunnah. Don't be surprised with those things. 
because the one example which highlights this, an easy example, is the example of Iblis. Iblis, who was given that honor and nobility and high up in the heavens amongst the angels, even though he was not an angel. With all of that honor and dignity, yet he disobeyed. Yet he disobeyed. So what therefore of mankind and humans, the different desires, they come into a person, the desires of the world, the desires of wealth, the <coughs> desires of the heart, and it may take a person away from what he has learnt. And there are many examples of this. When you look at the examples of graduates from the University of Medina, some of them even with masters, and yet they are in complete and utter opposition to what they would have been taught in their degrees and in their masters. The examples of Yasir Qadi and others like him, in complete opposition to what they learned. They did not learn what they teach now, guaranteed 100%. Absolutely. They did not learn what they teach now, in complete opposition to what they would have heard from the scholars in those days, would have been taught, would have studied. So this occurs for the ones who get pulled away by their desires, whatever those various desires may be. Last, uh, oh, go on. Huh. Okay. All right. So the the question here it says that we want a clarification of the beginning of the revelation when it occurred, where it occurred, that <coughs> beginning of revelation. That is a chapter in the book, but obviously time didn't allow. The beginning of the revelation, we know that before it even started, the Prophet ﷺ used to get <coughs> truthful dreams. And then on one occasion when he was in the cave of Hira, where he used to go regularly, and sometimes he would spend days and nights there at a time. Days and nights at a time he would spend there sometimes. And it's mentioned in Sirah, he would pack his bag with food and water and go to stay in the cave for a few days and a few nights, pondering and reflecting upon uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even before the prophethood. Because of course we know the remnants of the religion of Ibrahim remained. And he was never upon the way of the mushrikun. He never worshipped the idols before becoming a prophet. He was never upon their characteristics of drinking alcohol and other affairs. He was known amongst them before becoming a prophet as Al-Amin, the trustworthy one amongst them. And then after he became a prophet, there are narrations of how even the Jews, a Jewish man had a disagreement with a Muslim man, and the Jewish man said to the Muslim, let's go to the prophet. In fact, in the narration it mentions the Muslim was a munafiq, so he didn't want to go to the prophet. And the Jew wanted to go to the Prophet. He'll judge between us justly. Muhammad is just. So he was known in this way from before. So he used to go to the cave with his bag of food and water. And they say when he was going and he saw some of the poor people on the way, he would give them some of his food and water that he had prepared for himself to stay for a few days there. On one occasion when he was there, we know the story of how Jibreel came upon him and said to him, Iqra' recite, read, but he was not somebody proficient in reading or reciting, and he said, 
ما أنا بقارئ يعني لست أحسن القراءة I'm not somebody good at reading I'm not somebody proficient at reciting So then it mentions how Jibreel squeezed him and said again اقرأ And again he said I'm not proficient at reading I'm not one who can read And then he was squeezed And then eventually the ayat were revealed The opening section اقرأ بسم ربك الذي خلق And then when that occurred, of course now imagine the first time Jibreel has come to him. He came home in fear of this incident which had happened. An angel having come upon him. This revelation having come upon him. He came home and they mention in the books of Sirah that he was in like a state of shock at this whole event that had happened. And his pectoral muscles, chest was shaking. Shaking from that event when he came back. The chest muscles when he came back. And then he said to them, cover me, etc. So Khadija was there in his support. So that was the beginning when that revelation started. In the cave of Hira, when Jibreel came with the opening, Iqra, that was the prophethood. Then later on, after a while then, when the revelation came, Ya ayyuhal muddathir. And then he was told, Qum fa'anvir. That, the scholars say, is the beginning of the messengership. And that is the end of this opening session. So, inshallah ta'ala, that gives you a background into the messenger, وسلم, which will aid in giving you a better understanding of the rest of the lectures regarding the admonitions and benefits from the life of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allah khair. وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين Good, you know, just a lot. Go check that out on the other side.